Okay, listen. Uh, yeah. uh, let's not. Okay, we have one minute officially. <laughs> let's not lose time because I must say I'm not bluffing. This is not the polite starting point of a conversation. That I was really impressed by the quality of the questions, and I see your. Uh, perplexity and problems that you see with some questions and so on and so on, you know. And I must also say that like I am aware of the potential problems, problematic points in what I'm claiming. So I am 99% sure of what I'm claiming, but you know. But this is my experience. I can give you more examples and so on. You know, people often accuse me that I do these abstract speculations, but what I wrote about over-identification and so on and so on, this is one of... Now, I will be critical towards myself, of course. One of the few points of my theory, which is really, and I will use this kids' common-sense terminology, really based on my deepest personal experience. In this sense, I am not laughing there, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. do we begin? Ah, I see you. Sorry, I don't see the whole family name. The lady, Jessica. You asked me a nice, tough question. I know, I, I, I did my secret police job, you know. I want to move to China. You know, to what high art they develop this... But they apply to millions of people face recognition, you know. Their machines can recognize in a big crowd faces even if they wear masks. Yeah. I talk too much. How do you... Russell, you are the boss. Yeah. yeah. I need a master. How... Okay. <laughs> well, here's, here's what I thought we would do. Um, when you and I um, talked about this, I thought that... Um, we don't need the, we've already pretty much started. We don't, everyone know, everyone, I'll spare the honorifics. Everyone knows who you are. We've been reading your, your work. And uh, as you said, we, we sent questions. I know because when somebody says, it needs no introduction. This means we are in for 10 minutes of, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I'll actually be, be honest about that and not, and, and not do the introduction in the, uh, in the interest of time. Um, so we can get right into be it. arrogant in my politically incorrect style. Should we introduce you? Because nobody knows you. You need half an hour of introduction. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You are doing a very good job. Seriously. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. So I thought what we would do is when you and I talked, you said maybe like 10 or 15 minutes. Of... No, less, 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 but okay. for very precise reasons. Because there is, I'm sorry for this. The old now that I went through health problems, all my nervous tics and so on are returning with the vengeance. What I want to say is that there are so many interesting points in your questions that I would prefer just to, how do you put it, throw myself into the water and start to swim in your questions, not to lose points. Okay. Okay. Yeah. However you want to do it. Do you want, so do you want to, do you want to, do you have some remarks and then go in or do you want to just jump right into the questions? Okay. No, maybe I should make some, but not to your big question. May I should make some remarks, not apropos your big questions, but just to 
clarify some points. I forgot who of you raises this obvious question, this what I call liberal fear. But what if some neo-Nazis, for example, would nonetheless take Rammstein seriously and as neo-Nazis and so on? Well, I would like almost to begin with an empirical statement. I am aware of this danger. And I am, whenever I'm in Germany, talking with German uh, journalists, talking with uh, 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 German friends and so on, I obsessively always ask this question. And I always, always, not even one tiny exception, get the same answer, unambiguous. There are no neo-Nazis who like or who really refer to Rammstein as their own. Neo-Nazis like, even in United States, like, I mean, the old right, they like another type of music. You know, like, you know that before she, by she I mean Taylor Swift, you know, before she went open public with her, maybe not leftist, but at least pro-liberal anti-Trump stance, she was the heroine in some circle, at least, of the... Uh, and uh, I did these obsessive things. I did then ask myself this question, but what do then they listen? The new racist, neo-Nazis, and so on and so on. Well, I will disappoint you. Tender, nice ballads, romantic music, very gentle, very soft, and so on. That's why I believe that this Rammstein brutalities does, uh, does the work. Okay, but that's an important point. Uh, <coughs> incidentally, with Rammstein, there is no doubt because you know that they even had a song on this, Links, Left, which has a beautiful line saying that, that all are trying to convince us that we have heart on our right, but no, we have heart on our left side and so on and so on. Yeah. It's a nice line. But let's not lose time with it and let's, let me jump uh, directly into the, into the water. First point connected with this Rammstein. You know what I think is typical here? That Whenever there are accusations, not just apropos Rammstein, uh, uh, are they, what if some naive alt-right people will nonetheless take them as neo-Nazi propaganda and so on and so on. But I notice the same problem at multiple levels. For example, uh, did you follow, probably you did, I don't, only don't know how to pronounce the name of the guy. G-U-S-T-O-N, that, you remember that scandal, scandal, okay, a couple of months ago, when four big art institutions, galleries, whatever, museums, wanted to do an exhibition of his his, uh, uh, drawings, paintings, and then the worry was, what if nonetheless, because he painted, the Ku Klux Klan people, some black people who may be sensitive 
to the very physical presence of Ku Klux Klan images, what if they may be, uh, may be hurt by this? But what I claim, again, I propose this even as, a, as an empirical proposition to measure it. It, it is happening in the United States, in my country, and so on, that again and again, I see in this a patronizing sense of white liberals. As if blacks or whoever could be offended, as if they are so sensitive that we liberals should protect them. I say they will take care of themselves. They are strong enough. They will say if they are hurt and so on. And especially, how do you pronounce that guy's name? Guston, Gaston, people mostly pronounce it Gaston. I don't get it. Although I think it's Guston. Guston, it is. Okay, so I will pass to you. I mean, you as the letter. No, what I want to say is that <coughs> I tried to reject this idea that people may be nonetheless blacks, hurt by, but I looked at his paintings. You know what he does? Something that I consider wonderful. He puts all the Ku Klux Klan imagery in the miserable reality of lower class, that's his standard procedure, Ku Klux Klan members. You see a poor guy, dirty line and drinking and so on and so on. I think I cannot even imagine how some black guy could be offended by this because you don't get any fascination with Ku Klux Klan. You get this utter misery of the reality of Ku Klux Klan. And if you insist, nonetheless, some people reproached me that, nonetheless, it doesn't matter the context, the very symbol, Ku Klux Klan and so on, is uh, forceful enough that it can affect you. No, I think, here comes my second argument, that yes, in some sense, of course, it can hurt you. You cannot be neutral to see a Ku Klux Klan symbol. But I claim that precisely by nonetheless locating this symbol in the miserable reality, dirty, drunk, lower class guy, and so on and so on, uh, it, as it were, again, undermines, destroys the power of this symbol. And my further claim is the only way for me to really destroy it from within if you just describe it without feeling the presence, seeing it. You don't really do the job. If you remain at an abstract, rational level, you... The fascination remains. That's why I see in that guy who's stone or whatever, undermining the power of these images from within. Let's go further to the, uh, to the uh, big understanding or misunderstanding, uh, Judith Butler. Right, that's actually what I was going to ask you about that. So good. Three. Yeah, you didn't ask me, but your big question, you know, two, three pages. No, I was, just going, I was just about to ask you that, so you ah, read okay. my mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what I appreciate, and I'm not kidding, for me, 
It's not a joke. Two of her books that I like most are first her first books. Is it Subjects of Desire or yeah, what? Of desire. A very good book on Hegel. And then uh, uh, Psychic Life of Power. Why? Because uh, she comes there very close. I don't mean this in a patronizing way, like comes very close, but as a stupid feminist, she cannot really get it. But simply, she is not a Lacanian, so she doesn't use the term, but deploys the logic of what Lacan means by surplus enjoyment. Surplus enjoyment is not simply, no, it's just ordinary sex or pleasure, it's something more. It's a more which emerges in the less, in a deprivation, obstacle, and so on. You want something, it's prohibited. This prohibition is materialized in rituals, but then you start to enjoy rituals themselves. And uh, he, in a beautiful way, in one chapter, I forgot which one, of her psychic life of power, uh, Judith Butler uh, points out how this reversal, and she puts it very nicely in openly Hegelian terms, how, for example, the prohibition of desire automatically always turns into a desire for prohibition. Yeah. Results is prohibited. You start to enjoy the very prohibitions. Prohibition, the rituals, the prohibition, and so on and so on, which incidentally, a small Lacanian detour, which brings us to... Uh, Nice point, ambiguity of Lacan's notion of jouissance as impossible. You know, people usually read this just as the negative effect. The ultimate object of desire, okay, in a primitive pseudo-Freudian sense, mother cannot, is never accessible. But as Alenka Zupancic pointed out, First, we have to bring this example, which may appear naive, to its extreme. Okay, what if you, and I don't want to, uh, to humiliate others, so I will turn to you, Russell. <laughs> what if you really were to sleep with your mother? <laughs> uh, my point is, it would still not be, you know, even mother is not mother. That's Lacan's mm, point. Right. Okay, but let's go further. Uh, Lacan is not just saying this, that, that uh, 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 the object of desire is impossible, means we never get it, we just get metonymic or metaphoric displacement, we never get the thing itself. Lacan says something much more crucial, that the opposite also holds. We cannot get rid of enjoyment. You have a certain enjoyment, you prohibit it. But then enjoyment sticks to the very rituals of prohibition and so on. And this would be, for example, Lacan's basic model of surplus enjoyment. Or even at its most elementary, you know, when uh, this is how Lacan defines drive. Drive is specifically human, not the same as, uh, as uh, animal instinct means that, for example, Lacan's elementary example, or oral drive. Okay, a small kid wants to suck milk, he or she or it, I prefer it, has thirst. So, but then 
We are at the level of drive where your real enjoyment is in the process itself. You, yeah. It's sucking itself, not getting the milk and so on and so on. So this complication, I think, is crucial for how ideology works. And here I must correct a little bit myself. I wrote what I will tell you now. But maybe I wasn't uh, precise enough. Namely, all those people whom I appreciate very much, uh, Angela, Nagel, and so on, had this point how in the old days the left was subversive, showing you finger, let's be anti-establishment, vulgar, let's let's denounce the empty hypocritical rituals of those in power, how now it's the old right which took over, assumed, which did, to put it ironically, a cultural appropriation. And I think here we should use Lacan's term, perversion, also Freud's, in its precise meaning. You know what I maybe didn't develop clearly enough? This doesn't mean that, for example, somebody like Donald Trump was really subversive in the sense that he spoke openly whatever he wanted and so on. I claim that I doubt if there was a politician more consciously manipulating and more calculating, more respecting certain prohibitions than Donald Trump. That's crucial. And this confirms Freud's wonderful point when he says that nowhere is unconscious so deeply repressed than nowhere else than in the perversion. Perversion where apparently it's the opposite of repression, as they say wrongly, even Freud makes this lapse once. He said, uh, hysterics only dream about things, perverts do it in reality. No, for Freud already and for Lacan, perversion is the highest stage of uh, repression. We should always bear in mind this. Trump is not somebody who... Uh, literally uh, says everything opening and so on. No, no, he says it in a very calculated way with many uh, repressions and so on and so on, mystifications and so on and so on. But then I will stop. I talk too much as usual. Back to Judith Butler. So uh, where is my misunderstanding? Okay, I will try to be because I do appreciate her as a Theoretician, you know why? Because she nonetheless, that's the good side of Judith. I noticed that she is one of the members of what I call new left Hegelians, feminists, or at least women who are profoundly attached to Hegel. For example, Judith even tries to, I forgot where, to reassert what is usually considered as the most problematic notion of Hegel, absolute knowing and so on and so on. And he is not alone. There are so many of them. Do some of you know her? That she's from Puerto Rico, did a book on Hegel, uh, Rocio Zambrana. Oh, I haven't, I, I, I know, I haven't read that book yet. 
But, but see, yeah. I read just one text on Hegel, Adorno, and mourning, suffering. It's an excellent text. Basically, it's a text against this Habermasian reading. You know, Habermas's point is that Adorno and all those partisans of negative dialectics are just critical without bringing out, formulating a positive norm, norm, normative standard by means of which they judge reality as terrifying, bad, and so on, and so on. That's the standard idea, critical reproach to the older generation of Frankfurt School itself, to dialectic of of aufklärung, of enlightenment. And I think she, Rocio Zambrana, triumphantly demonstrates how, no, for Hegel and even for Marx, although sometimes in a more obscure way, no, Hegel just, uh, as it were, uh, describes the inner tension, the suffering, in human terms, the inner tension of a certain normative structure and in this way undermines it without implying some good uh, standard of positive by means we should measure, measure it. Okay, so Judith Kegelian. Uh, the problem I see, and now I come to your questions in your introductory Russell notes, but also in some of your his students' uh, points. Uh, you know, I will try to be as brutal as possible, where I see a certain difference, nonetheless. With uh, Judith, when she talks about how norms are constructed through uh, this uh, playful, repetitive, ironic repetition, which always displaces the norms, and so on, and so on. Yeah. Uh, and she sees in this the, how should I call it even? But she nonetheless sees in this ironic displacement, repetition, and so on and so on, some kind of force of subversion. I see in this fundamentally the basic model of functioning of ideology. For me, it's, I don't see any subversive power in this. So I will now go back immediately, sorry if I will sound a little bit confused, to another question one of you asked it. Uh, and I don't know who, was it one of you whom I see who made that wonderful point, I like this empirical confirmation, that you served the army and went through the training there. Oh, that was, that was, yeah, that was, that was Evan. <laughs> no, I don't see him here. doesn't matter. What oh, about I am here. Oh, you are just, ah, yeah. hi, hi. Oh, you did. You are, you are not like those soft pussies there. You really <laughs> did. <laughs> no, but I'm so, you know how I agree with you. Those couple of lines in your question, I identify with them so much because as you said, if I quote you correctly, Sexuality is everywhere and nowhere in the army. And this contradictory 
combination fascinated me. Like maybe you know my old example, when I was in the army, on the one hand, it was totally homophobic. If a soldier was discovered to be gay, he was sent home, but before the decision came from headquarters, he was usually ritualistically beaten every night and so on and so on. So homophobia is out. Sorry, uh, homosexuality is out. Homophobia reigns. But at the same time, the entire uh, atmosphere, jokes and so on, was totally penetrated by homoeroticism. For example, sorry if I repeat it, some of you know this, in my army unit, we didn't say to each other, good morning, but smoke mine, vulgar expression for smoke my brick, fellatio, and so on. Or dozens of models like this. So what fascinated me is this combination of moral severity, homosexualities, out, blah, blah, but at the same time, sustained by an extreme degree of homosexual metaphorics, games, and so on and so on, even at an almost childish level. For example, when in the army we were waiting in line for food distribution, it was a stupid game played again and again that people were standing behind you so that one of them then stuck his fingers up your ass, you turned around and, ah, they were all looking around, I guess who it was, and so on and so on. This combination uh, fascinates me. And maybe I'm simplifying here Judith's point, so I will tell my point. In my experience, all these dirty rituals are in no way subversive. Without them, without this obscene supplement, you lose military discipline itself. And totalitarian as I am, I liked military discipline. I went to the army hoping that I will get absolute discipline. And I was, I am a true fascist, honest fascist, they don't exist, you know. And I was shocked by how this obscenity uh, uh, invaded, uh, invaded the whole field. Even officers, I noticed how the most severe officers, at the same, they shouted us, shouted at us, terrorized us, but always mixed this with obscenity. You know, like, for example, haha, now you worked so hard. If your girl will visit you, you will not be able even to fuck uh, her. And then after the weekend visit, she asked the soldier openly, ha, how was it? Very common vulgarities. But you see my point. My point is, now you can correct me, maybe I'm wrong. I don't see this duality as the duality of official oppressive order and then resistance. Of, no, this is false resistance. This resistance uh, uh, sustains the order. And now I make my usual excessive point going too much. I would have said that, and I experienced this on my skin, as it were. If you try to play just the game of discipline without these obscene rituals, supplements, you are 
excommunicated much more forcefully than if you violate the explicit rules of discipline. That was my experience. Other soldiers, even officers, immediately felt that you are not playing their obscene game and you were out. So again, back to Judith. I have the impression, maybe, I even hope I'm wrong, at least up to a point, that for her, it is the pure paternal, whatever, authority, symbolic law, whatever, which is then undermined to a certain level, of course, through these dirty rituals. No, I think these dirty rituals are the main support of a power which functions. And the big example that I use here, that I like to use here is that of, sorry if you know it, Trump versus Bernie Sanders. Oh. When these neocons, idiots claim, oh, Trump is for traditional values, blah, blah, blah. I said, no, if there ever was, I'm sorry if some of you know this line of thought of mine, if there ever was a, a postmodern president, by postmodern I mean making fun of all values, irony, obscenity all the time, it's Donald Trump. If there ever was a politician who comes as close as possible to a traditional, elementary dignity, morality, even family values to a certain point. It's Bernie Sanders. Yeah. I, I like this reversal. So that would be one point of disagreement with her. The second one, I will put it in very brutal, simplified terms. Uh, I think that Judith still thinks that today the main ideology is patriarchal ideology and that the way to subvert it is to play this game of uh, <coughs> playing <coughs> ironic repetition, carnival, undermining it, plasticity, reconstructing your identity. My thesis is that to put it again in very brutal terms, that what she describes as a potentially subversive model is, is today the predominant form of, sorry for this official sounding term, uh, late capitalist form of subjectivity. I think that what neoconservatives are doing today, uh, return to homophobic family values and so on and so on, it's just a clownish reaction. The battle is lost. The, the, yeah. the, the predominant, in what sense, even if this, let's call them performative social constructivists who claim there is no fixed identity, we uh, reconstruct our identity playfully, undermine change, invent ourselves. I think this is the predominant ideology even if it's not uh, uh, quantitatively the predominant one, all others already uh, react to it. So would you say that does, does Trump, I, I, I actually, I included this in some of the questions that, that I said, yes. but, and maybe this is a way to get to 
uh, question that someone in the uh, that Maureen had about the effect that um, that COVID has on our on our political or ideological um, imagination. But do you do you think that with tr- it's interesting that Trump is a sort of return of that Trump was a return of of postmodern cynicism in a way because it seemed like that era was 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 over. But I wonder if, do you think that with Trump and all of these other sort of, you know, international obscene right-wing figures of the master that um, are we still, because the postmodern era was presumably, you know, supposedly post-ideological. And of course, your point was that it wasn't post-ideology at all. We, we just moved from, ideology moved from functioning um, symptomally, mm-hmm. the old Marxist notion, right, in capital, they, they, they do not know it, but they do, they're, they're doing it, mm-hmm. to under postmodern cynicism, um, fetishistically, right? The formula for fetishistic disavow. Like they, they, uh, they know very well that they're doing it, but nonetheless, is is Trump and this sort of like international, you know, r- r- rise of these right wing obscene um, <clears throat> figures of the master? Is this within that sort of cynical fetishistic horizon of ideology, or does that mark a break with uh, with that? Well, I will be very honest. And I will admit, because openly, that I would like to learn here from you. I don't think I have a clear position here, because the first thing I would like to say is that, you know, with all his irony undermining and so on and so on, Trump doesn't go to the end. There are things he is not ready to joke about. Like he jokes about many things, but he doesn't mean it in an ironic way when he says, make America big again, United States are a big nation and so on and so on. So Trump has limits. He is not through and through. Uh, he's not all the way, as it were, uh, uh, ironic. But I want to go back to another question about a full metal jacket. You know, that soldier who, at the end, he kills himself, I think, who is over-identified, no? Yes, I accept this, but that's why I think he is a failed excess. He is not a true model of a good soldier. My reading, if I remember correctly, of Full Metal Jacket is that those in his unit who are presented more skeptical, looking at him ironically, those who do not fall into this trap, they are the good soldiers. You know, he is not the model of military discipline. He is an excess. Okay, he doesn't subvert it in the sense of Rammstein, but he brings it to the point of madness. He goes too far. That's why uh, I uh, am always fascinated by how even the worst totalitarians and that's what I miss in that crazy soldier. I forgot his name. Who trains them? You know. Oh, and the drill, the drill sergeant. Yeah. But yeah. Do you know an irony? Members of the wing version of Rammstein, of Leibach, our hard punk groups. You know that they were at that point when Kubrick was shooting Full Metal Jacket. They were there because they worked. They played the role of one of the soldiers there. They were there. 
Oh, re- I didn't. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, I have a link with that drill sergeant, and they told me that she was a little bit crazy. He was not just acting; he was really like that, you know. Well, he was—he was actually a drill sergeant. He was. Yeah. I, Kubrick brought him in as a consultant, and then he yeah. was so good at it when he was just modeling what the actor should do. Kubrick said, "No, you're—you are the drill sergeant." Yeah, but but my friends told me again that people liked him because you know. There was no fake in him. He really was that. That's why it's suicide. It doesn't work. I think the the story of the movie is how, through his failure, through taking a distance towards his excess, a normal, good military discipline is organized. But wait a minute. I have here to provoke you a little bit. Another I hope, provocative thesis. I will tell you that. But, you know, as a leftist, I reject this liberal leftist notion, oh, discipline, bad, we should be free, express ourselves. No, sorry. There are social situations where you need discipline, where you need hard work and so on. I'm not against discipline. And I will give you a slightly, uh, 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 which is why, okay, I will give you another example. This is the ambiguity of, otherwise I like him very much, Robert Altman's first mega hit, Mesh. Remember it? Yeah. I never got it what should be so subversive in that movie. I'm talking about movie, not the TV series. With all the irony and jokes and so on, they are model soldiers for me. It's not a story about how you can subvert it. No, precisely through this private distance, making fun and so on. They do their job, saving lives and so on, lives and so on and so on. They do their job in an excellent way. This is for me, again, not a subversive portrayal, but simply a realistic portrayal of uh, military life. But you know what? You have so many intelligent people, and I don't count you among them, intelligent <laughs> with good questions, please, I am here to be beaten. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, let's open it up. Who wants to... I'm not hypocritical. I would like to learn from you where I am wrong and so on and so on, because Judith Butler, maybe she was right once she claimed that I am too traumatized when I speak about inherent transgressions by my uh, socialist background. Till 1990, Yugoslavia was a communist country, and their ideology worked. This is maybe my formative experience, almost epiphany. In the last decade, ideology, official ideology, worked in an openly cynical way. If those in power perceived you as somebody who really believed in official ideology, you usually lost your job. You were considered dangerous. Because the idea was, if you take it too seriously, you will become a dissident sooner or later. So uh, maybe I'm making some mistakes here, which is why I always go, when I go to China, when I go to whichever different culture, this is always what interests me. Is this logic that I described in a primitive way, this inherent transgression, the obscene underside of power. 
is this something culturally specific or universal? I tend to claim it is universal. It works in different ways and so on and so on. But I spoke about it in Israel. I went to the other side, not to Iran, but to, to yeah, yeah. West Bank. It's always the same in China, in Korea, wherever I was. I mean, okay. I, mean, I, mean, I, mean yeah. uh, I would like to get yeah. hard questions so that I don't <laughs> talk. Yeah. All. I mean, quickly, I would just say, I think that your point, I would agree. I would say that it's. Go it's, to but. Well, no, I was just, this. I was just going to say that it's 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 universal. But like you were saying, that it's the 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 structuring role of enjoyment is is the, is universal. But it are, it are, it's articulated in different in different forms or different ways. I Can I tell you something? There, I got a very interesting reply from some of my uh, Japanese friends. They told me that in Japan, in the academia, the structure is superficially much more oppressive. You can only address your professor who is above you, the big professor, if you are assistant or whatever, in a very respectful way. You shouldn't openly contradict him, you know. But nonetheless, it is, of course, ritualized, the way you signal or agreement. The furthest you can go, I love this, is to say, that uh, I totally agree with you. Maybe I would just risk and put the accent in a slightly different way. Or, But you have in the States, as far as I know, the same rituals. Like, let's say, Russell, I will be the bad guy. Don't be afraid. Uh, I give a talk and I ask you, was it good or not? How do you say in a polite way it was bad? As far as I know, the phrase is, it was interesting. Yeah, yeah. it was interesting. Yeah. Interesting, it means it was bad, the polite way, you know, because I was once at the unique scene when I was an idiot and risked it. And I said to a guy, well, it wasn't too good, it was bad. And the guy was deeply hurt. And then he explained to me, he said, I know it wasn't too good, but why then didn't you just say that it was interesting. I would have gotten the point. He thought that naming it directly adds another much more aggressive personal intersubjective uh, uh, dimension. No? Sorry, I interrupted you. Let's go on. All right. Who, let's, let's open it up a little bit um, yeah. to somebody who wants to ask a question or to jump in here. Ah, screw you. There you oh, I'm happy. Long questions and so This on. is an now interesting. I- this is an interesting. I, I have a question though, Please. and it's along these lines of the you know, the short version is is it how do we be subversive in modern media? And Sorry, so the, how do we I didn't get how do we how, how do, would we be subversive in modern uh, media? And I'm thinking of something like the Colbert Report. Do you know the show? where um, Stephen Colbert, one of the old people from The Daily Show, mocked being a kind of Fox News type conservative critic. And the phenomena came out that conservatives actually love the show because they think the joke is on his fake guests, um, whereas liberals love the show because they think it's about making fun of him 
and Fox News and so on. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the yeah. question is, you know, you read what you want to read, and irony just allows you to see whatever side you want to see. Is it what is the medium that makes critique possible? Um, now it may uh, surprise you my answer with all this. I will make a, a point, which is not exactly a reply to you, but it moves in the same direction. You know, with all this talk of, oh, Trump lied 20,000 times, how many lies, and so on. I think that uh, it's much more dangerous when people lie in the guise of truth, so that everything they say can be literally true, but it's still a lie. And I convinced my Jewish friends, maybe you know the story, uh, when I told them, <coughs> sorry, I can easily imagine a book, let me, allow me, I will not do it, to write a book with the title like uh, The Role of Jews in uh, Art Criticism and Legal System and Journalism in General in Germany in the early 1930s. All data would be true. And it's clear that Jews did mostly control art criticism. 70% of art critics were Jews. Legal profession, most of the lawyers were Jews, and so on and so on. So you see my point. Everything can be true. But in that concrete constellation, these truths would have served the anti-Semitic lie. That's why I'm saying it's much more dangerous, this lying in the guise of truth. It's never, uh, uh, the point is never simply, do you lie or not? The most dangerous lie, again, is a truthful lie. Uh, you know where I discovered the last example? Maybe you read it in some big media, CNN, I don't know where. I discovered that a restaurant, sorry, I'm not sure, was it Toronto or Boston? A Chinese restaurant had a menu which is, as it were, truthful. For example, when they give these descriptions of different entries, foods, with some special noodles, they say, it's not really as good, we wonder ourselves why people are so stupid to order this meal and so on. But isn't this, the, the, the strategy is that precisely in this way they seduce you even more, you know. It appears to be honest and so on. And I was told that years ago, you had in the States already the uh, self-ironic reflexive publicity, like it shows the group of people who want, who are making the commercial for a certain product. And they talk like, how should we mani manipulate people? Should we add this? Should we add that? And it worked perfectly. So again, the point is not simply the, the truth. It is a literal truth, which can be a deeper lie. That's the most dangerous one. So I'm much more afraid than of Trump. I would be of somebody who would have been Trump with a measure, as it were, you know, who take a little bit more care of. I think with Trump, it was another strategy, more complex. I'm more and more convinced, and I think you, Russell, already gave some hints on it. We agree here that 
For Trump, his lies were not a mistake. His lies were part of his message. His lies made him popular. The same thing happened, the first one who did this step was Ronald Reagan. I remember how the big liberal media after every press conference of Reagan, that's why then there were less and less of them, they made the list of his lies, untruth, and so on. And then shockingly, they discovered that this only boosts help his uh, popularity, you know. So I would, I would have said that uh, uh, though the answer would have shocked you. I will appear as a kind of a almost real, authentic neocon, Bernie Sanders, and so on. That uh, I think we, the left radicals, if we are this, should accept without any shame, irony, and so on, at a certain level, moral majority logic. We should address people not as some subversive fanatics who at the triple level of irony make the point, but simply addressing people in their ordinary cares, supposing that they are still at certain level honest and addressing that. And that's what I think Bernie Sanders was doing. That's what Jeremy Corbyn was doing. So I am paradoxically for a certain level of naivety here, even. I think that the truly subversive thing today is to be naive, even with, now I will take a problematic example. I don't think it was with you, Russell, but somewhere I already used it and uh, some people were shocked, to put it mildly. For example, concerning patriotism. I think the left should absolutely advocate patriotism. Loving your country is not bad, but our reproach to alt-right should be that what they are doing is seeding panic. They don't trust in America. They are in a panic, you know. It's you. That's the elementary point that some intelligent leftists, even Angela Merkel, who is not lefty, made it once in Germany. He said, because I love Germany and I trust Germany, we are a great notion. That's why we can afford to invite foreigners to come here. Those who are afraid of foreigners, my God, foreigners will in invade us, destroy us. They really don't trust the greatness of their own nation. So isn't this a much better strategy? Not to say you are racist, you don't see other minority cultures. Yes, we see them, but there is no contradiction in respecting others and loving your nation. If you really love and trust your nation, then up to a certain point, of course, I'm not saying let's invite ISIS to open, a, to open an <laughs> embassy in Washington, no. But uh, nonetheless, uh, patriotism should show itself in this way. If you are strong, you help others, you are not afraid of others, and so on and so on. This is, this is very important, I claim, to stop with this idea that the, the radical left should be this obsession with ultra-minorities. You know, already Jean-Jacques Rousseau, one of the great, my great guys, said wonderfully that how do you discover fake liberal who lives in a street, in a nearby street, there are hundreds of 
poor people, but no, he cares more about some Mongolian tribe than about. Like, this is what I like also about David Harvey, the Marxist, who was always against this obsession with minorities and so on. I remember I was at a round table with him, I even forgot there, maybe in London at Berbeck, when somebody advocated this radical line that our working class is already part of what Lenin called working class aristocracy, they are all corrupted, only this marginal groups are today really subversive. And then David Harvey exploded. He said, sorry, go to the suburbs of Detroit or Cleveland and so on. You will see what neoliberal politics did to the working class there and so on and so on. Don't treat them as privileged, you know. So along these lines, I think that, uh, uh, I will say something horrible. I'm more and more for, not in the fascist sense, for direct action. Say directly, what do you mean? Don't worry about this double, triple, ironic level and so on. You know, in this way, I believe we can can win. We should be the voice of, I know it sounds horrible, but we should be the, isn't this wonderful? That's my dream. The new left as the voice of truly patriotic, silent moral majority. And we should seriously play this game because in this way, we would take voters from Trump and so on and so on. And again, Bernie has his limitations. I'm not idealizing him, but he saw this very clearly where he said his message to Democrats was stop your obsession with uh, with uh, those middle in between, arbitrary radical and so on. Our target should be those who otherwise vote for Trump. And incidentally, that's his strategy. I spoke with people who are working around him and he, who did, were working around him when he was still in Burlington, Vermont. No? That this was his strategy. He visited poor farmers there and so on. All those who would have not, all those who were morally concerned about uh, decadence and so on and so on. If you ask me, I, 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 uh, I think uh, we should break out of this model. I don't know how to call it. Of uh, you know, obsession with uh, with. Uh, marginal, invisible, and so on, and so on. Because I know many people who are marginal, half invisible. Some so-called Native Americans, also Blacks, and so on. And they opened up to me, many of them, and told me, you cannot imagine how they despise this white liberal condescending celebration of them, like, you know, we are alienated, you have an authentic like them. My God, a Native American Indian guy exploded to me. He said, what authenticity? Do you know the misery of the average uh, uh, tribal area and so on? It's a nightmare, drugs, people are drugs. You know that in Canada, I learned, maybe you read it, it was in the media already two, three years ago, If you go from the center of Canada, uh, uh, Toronto, up north, 
there is a city which mostly, whatever you call them, Inuits, na- natives, first, whatever, which has the highest suicide rate in the world. It's total despair. Blacks at least succeeded in different forms. They are not all ac- acceptable, maybe for us, to build their identity from fa- people that don't like, like Farrakhan and so on. They have a sense of identity. Inuits, even more than Native Americans in Canada, I was told, they are just live pure despair. Most of them haven't even reached this level. So the worst favor you can do for them is to celebrate them as some remainders of uh, authentic life and so on and so on. I mean, when I talk with them, they explode. They say to white people who come and say, we are more, say, okay, let's change places. You come to live with my misery, I move to your house in Pasadena. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. Well, we have, let's see, we've got about maybe like 20 minutes, um, because I don't want to keep too long, but... Yeah, but, uh, there are there are some some questions, Tony. Uh, why don't I'm sorry that I talk too much. I will try to. Uh... <laughs> Tony, you you go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to um, keep thinking about the idea of irony because it's always sort of a question whether irony is even subversive anymore. Can you do something with your microphone? Like yeah, Tony, hang on. yeah, we can't really hear you. You're like coming out. No, I see. Can you hear me now? Yeah, that's that's better. That's, that's better. better. Yeah. Sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Um, totally fine. Uh, I I have a question about the idea of irony because I wonder if it's even subversive at all anymore. I think about which, Trump supporters who so. Sorry, which, which verb did you use? What is no, no irony? Irony. If irony is subversive. Uh, yeah, irony. Yeah. <laughs> um. Trump supporters in 2016 started out very ironically supporting him, saying, oh, he can't win, but I like it's like a middle finger to the establishment. It makes people, you know, angry when I vote. By 2020, almost all of that had disappeared. People just genuinely preached support for him, thought that he was a really good guy. People believed in the QAnon stuff because they thought he was the only good politician. It so seems who, that irony... Whom are you talking now? I missed it. You are talking about whom? Uh, Trump supporters. Oh, yeah, Trump supporters, yeah, yeah. It, it almost seems like the irony was a gateway to genuine support, fervent support, bigger support really than any other politician gets, more devoted at least. How has irony in sort of the modern era been, I guess it's lost its subversive touch, in my view? It's a, all I can say uh, is that I try to distinguish, apropos irony, two levels of irony. The good one is the one that you find in Mozart's operas, surprising point. But I will explain very simply what I mean. The best irony for me is irony in the usual sense. You mean something, but in an ironic way. Like, let's fight for freedom, ha, 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 you don't really mean it, no? Uh, And I totally agree with you that it's not enough just making fun of those in power. Because you gave a proof, because you made a wonderful point of how, and that's basic, theoretical insight of how uh, 
the difficult historical process is not from real belief to irony, like that people first really believed and then slowly they no longer took it seriously. The way things function is that you begin by not taking things seriously. You say to yourself, it's just irony. And then all of a sudden you get, as it were, caught into your own game. My supreme example here, not of irony, but more of manipulation, would have been a horrible book, boring. Uh, but I tried to read, I managed one third of it, Hitler, Mein Kampf, Strage. If you ask the simple question, did Hitler really believe in the bullshit he was writing? The answer is incredible. Yes and no, in the sense that he was obviously consciously lying. He even gives the formula. If you repeat a lie often enough, it will become truth and so on. But then you can see the point when he, as it were, falls into his own lie, you know, and takes it seriously. And that's what I call, sorry for this snobbish high art example, Mozart's ironies. In Mozart's operas, you have often this procedure, like in, for me, his greatest opera, Cusifan Tute, two guys want to seduce diagonally their ex-girlfriend, and of course, they fake. It's ironic. They just want to prove that they could be seduced, that this is it, that they will be unfaithful to their original partners. But then you can see how gradually they fall into their game and believe it. So this deeper irony is not you say, but haha, you say it with irony, you don't mean it, really. It's on the contrary. You don't mean it seriously, but you are more serious than you think that you are. You don't know it, but you are already in the way. And my good friend, Mladen Dolar, used here a wonderful example he reads a lot more than me, and he found a wonderful love short story by Henry James. When a love couple is forming, and one guy, not one of the future lovers, asks the other, that, that guy, does that guy love that woman? And the answer is, of course he does, he do, just doesn't know it. <laughs> that he already loves her, you know. And this is today, I think, again, the, a very important mechanism. Another thing, if I, you allow me another, uh, uh, another improvisation here, I have the same ambiguity towards jokes, political humor, you know. I think it depends at which level you move. On the one hand, at least in old ex-communist countries, Political humor was, that's my thesis, again, maybe a little bit too radical, uh, uh, a great way to discipline people. There was even a rumor, probably not true, in all ex-communist countries, in Eastern Europe at least, I checked, that a secret department, ultra-secret of a secret police, uh, produced and put in circulation political jokes. Jokes, to avoid a misunderstanding, against their own elite. The idea is that through these irony jokes, we make fun of them, people will find an outlet to enact their frustrations and make less uh, 
direct political protests, and so on and so on. So these political jokes, I don't think they are really subversive. Then you get something uh, even worse. You get jokes of the elite itself. I know Slovenia is a small country. We knew each other. Two million people. For us, general secretary was not the guy you saw once a year on a TV. It was a guy whom you could meet on the street. You know, it was not this mystery distance. And uh, they had an inner humor making fun of stupid people who take their own ideology seriously and so on. So there is definitely also a humor of those in power themselves making fun of ordinary people. And I learned, for example, from China that the top Beijing nomenclatura has incredibly wide network of jokes making fun of the stupid local party secretaries. But if I can tell you a joke, I use it in one of my books, I hope you don't know it. One joke I nonetheless like because it's a very ambiguous one. It has an ethical, almost beauty and tenderness. It's a joke, typical higher communist nomenclatura joke about the local party secretary who visits a big city and buys new black shoes, you know, shining and so on. So to fascinate his secretary with whom he flirts, of course, a lady, he puts, when she brings him some papers, she puts a shoe like in front of him so that it reflects uh, in front of her, almost between her legs, and says, oh, I see it reflected. You see, I have these kind of shoes. Your, uh, your underwear, you have red panties today. Okay, next day, she does the same and says, today you have yellow panties, you know. And then it's not vulgar. It's almost some tenderness. The third day, the secretary has nothing, wanted to test him, no? And he does like this, and you know what he says? Oh my God, new shoes, but they already have a crack. You know, the beautiful idea is that he's nonetheless half honest, and he doesn't want to say, oh, you are naked, I see the crack of your vagina. But in a nice, gentle way, he takes it upon himself. You know, like, my shoes are bad. So they have a refined humor of the Chinese, but again, you have this, and then there is humor, but much more brutal, which works of ordinary people making fun of those in power, like of their corruption and so on and so on. So again, my big opposition is here, Although, generally, I appreciate him. You remember, you are too young for it. It was before, but still. You, uh, Umberto Eco, the name of the rose, il nome della rosa. This idea that humor is subversive, it can be or not. Humor is, can also be a very powerful tool of those, of those in power, sorry, to undermine this serious moralistic dissidence opposition or whatever sorry yeah no that's uh, yeah um sal you had a question 
yeah, so along the same lines as um, the two questions that have been asked already, um, then how do we sort of reconcile a genre like horror, since that's something that's really at my like forefront right now, um, that's something I really wanted to ask. How do we um, see, um, usually horror seen as something that is subversive? You mean horror movies or horror horror? What do you mean by horror? Sorry. Like, like horror movies, horror yeah. literature, um, usually seen as some, like there's some for- form of like subversive character or subversive formality to it. Um, so how would you, would you consider horror as subversive or as a, a tool or a mechanism of ideology in some way? Uh, it's a good question. I don't want to, to lie and bluff too much. I admit that I don't have a, that I don't have a, a, a direct answer here. So I would just like to make one point. I think that all the time while we are watching horror movies, we are aware that we are watching just a movie, that it's not reality. So it's not this real mimetic horror, as if I'm being strangled or or uh, killed or suffocated or uh, whatever, cut by a knife. The, the proof is this one. You know what would have been for me? And uh, a gay friend from the United States told me years ago, he had this experience. He borrowed by a friend, these were the old times, prehistorical, maybe you remember them, of, of those videotapes, <laughs> so, you know, a cassette. And he thought it's an ordinary gay hardcore cassette. And then he was shocked. And then he discovered that his friend just got it, also didn't know it. How do you call that snuff or whatever? Movies where the thing yeah. really, yeah. really yeah. it's snuff or what? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. In the middle of it, he discovered that, my God, this is not acting. Because they really cut off the guy's one ball, <laughs> put a knife into his stomach, cut it, and so on. And everything, it totally changed. So I think that horror always has <coughs> sorry, <coughs> this type of distance in it. And my ultimate proof here, sorry of re- to repeat my old joke, but I take it seriously. <coughs> I'm sorry. It's not. I am already Pfizer vaccinated. <laughs> it's not the thing. I think uh, it's hardcore pornography. No, this failure of some attempts in France and so on to make, what they call it, realistic hardcore pornography, so that you have a serious melodramatic story where you identify with heroes, but when there is a sex scene, you see it all. It didn't work. People, even those who wa- like to watch hardcore, uh, want this difference to be kept. If it's a story that should make you cry, blah, blah, uh, you shouldn't see it all. If you see it all, penetration, blah, blah, uh, ejaculation, whatever, then the story should be ridiculous. So the fact I spoke with some producers, women, I was correct, not those who exploit women, I hope so, and uh, a woman in France, and she told me that they are well aware of this, that 
Because I ask her, how could you do such extremely stupid nar- narratives that accompany? The-? She said, she told me it doesn't work, you know. So this is what fascinated me. The genre which you think it's totally without any limitations, except the direct uh, masochism, killing, and so on. You show it all, no, you pay the price. The story should not be, you know. How, uh, against this simplistic pseudo-Brechtian theory that usual romantic narrative, you identify with it. No, you don't identify with it. That's why you are able, uh, you are able to enjoy it, you know. Yeah, well, Slava, you've made that point before that that about pornography in general. That you, the the narrative is that not the narrative of the story, but that the I, the notion is that this is you see it all. This is like you know everything, but it's a deeply conservative genre. Deeply conservative, deeply deeply conservative, regulated. Uh, 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 I mean, uh, totally uh, totally regulated. But did you read in some text? I hope you didn't. My Absolutely sublime story about pornography. I'm sorry if you know it, I must tell it. Is I read a comment, an op-ed in The Guardian magazine half a year ago, a lady called Eva Weissman, one of their columnists, reports on something. She saw a hardcore movie, I also saw that one, which, no, don't be afraid, I'm not a pervert, listen. Give me a chance. Hardcore <laughs> movie, but which is shot by another camera, three, four yards behind the camera shooting the movie. So you see what goes on, all these absurd details and so on. And the scene that happened is this one. The guy is standard scene, banging a lady, and then in the middle of it, he stepped, he, sorry, the guy, steps back and said, I'm sorry, I'm losing erection. Could somebody pass me my iPhone? I will surf a little bit of, on Pornhub to get excited again to do erection. And this lady, Eva Weissman, not the actress, is shocked, like, where did we come? She had there the real thing, the excited lady, and now she needs fantasy but I think this is the structure of sexuality. You always need a fantasy. Sexuality is never just you with the, with the object. Fantasy is inscribed into sexual act. But here my romantic side comes. Does this go all the way? I think not. I think, sorry for my romanticism, in true passionate love, you are really with the woman or with the man, whatever, with whom you are. So this is a nice point, you know, in what sense? My point is that, and there is a lesson for for a pandemic, for COVID in it, that uh, if you have just sexuality without passionate emotional involvement, love, you are much closer to virtuality than in passionate love. Passionate love brings you much closer even bodily to your partner. Or, as I like to say, sex without love is like a masturbation with a real partner. To get a real contact, you need love. Here I'm 
and an incurable romantic. Well, since you mentioned since you mentioned COVID, do we do we have like five or ten minutes just for one more question? Okay. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate the cynicism of your point. Like when I get a question, I need five to make. <laughs> well, no, because um, uh, you mentioned COVID, and and I think this is like a, a, a this is a, a contemporary question because um, Maureen, this is one of the questions that I sent you. Yeah. Uh, well, I want her to ask it, but it's about COVID and capitalism versus something I call communism. Maureen, why don't you jump in? My question was regarding pandemic. Can we, uh, yeah. yeah, can we view the pandemic as a as a form of late capitalist ideology, where we see wealthy billionaires um, who are in the e-commerce business, they keep getting wealthy, like the owner of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, but while his employees, um, they're working in harsh conditions in the warehouses. So is the pandemic a form of late capitalism ideology, or is it a form of communism? where we see countries uniting each other and assisting each other with um, medical equipments and vaccines to fight this global enemy together? It's a very good, tough question. I'm always asked, often asked this question because people sometimes identify me, you know, as that idiot who thought, oh, we will go into communism. Uh, I still think that the first shock of the pandemic brought out something that one cannot but designate, and not by some ideologies, by everyday people, some kind of a communist spirit. It became clear to us that, that for example, vaccine production, care, care for the COVID patients and so on, cannot believe to the market that healthcare has to be socialized in some sense, even states run by conservatives, United States, United Kingdom, and so on, de facto had to introduce some kind of something that resembles uh, basic income and so on and so on. So I think that people became aware of it, that something, whatever you call it, is would have been the only appropriate question to COVID. That is to say, in some sense, not necessarily just state control, socializing uh, production, even agriculture and so on, world should unite. We all know this phrase is always repeated, COVID, you cannot just beat it in one country in the long term, you have to do it all around, all that stuff and so on and so on. Also, what people are so afraid, but I accept it gladly, not gladly, okay. Uh, we need a tighter, I wouldn't say necessarily state control, but social control. I don't see it as uh, oppressive even. Social control of our act, self-control, also trust to the people. It's clear that countries which did relatively well with COVID. They did it in two ways, either with brutal state control, like from what I know, maybe I'm wrong, I hope, China, or simply, like till now at least, some Scandinavian countries where simply people not only trust those in power, but trust themselves, self-organize. So there is 
something like a communist tendency. And my reading is that the phenomena that you described, all this absurd, uh, all this uh, not only uh, regress of, of the role of women in the West, more exploitation of wives, and the, the, the professions which sacrificed most were largely feminized, nurses and uh, <coughs> caretakers and so on and so on. <coughs> I think that what global capitalism is doing now is precisely desperately searching for the ways to contain this, let's call it communist or radical socialist threat. One way is the Trumpian way, let's not take it seriously. No, life goes on as usual. The other way is the Bill Gates and so on promising to the elite, although they don't say this bubble capitalism, we will live in safe places and so on, uh, total digital control and so on and so on. So I think that, uh, again, globally at the basic level, there was something which made notions that two years ago, imagine that somebody were to say two years ago, every American family should get a check of $2,000 or we need to socially organize uh, uh, healthcare and so on and so on. You would be considered being a leftist madman or whatever. Now it's accepted, but that's only one side of the story. The system, and I don't mean some secret body meeting once a year somewhere between New York and Washington and making plans. Spontaneously, the system is trying to contain this danger. Capitalism knows that this is a hard blow to capitalism. So I would say an answer to you that the dilemma that you describe, either some sort of a movement towards communism or, or uh, even stronger capitalist exploitation control and so on. It's a real political process. This is a struggle that's going on today. That would be my answer. It's not a simple question. It's either this or that. It's a struggle which then overlaps with other struggles. That's why I still admire, for example, Julian Assange, because much more important than his first batch of informations about what Americans were doing in Iraq and so on, is what he demonstrated about Google and all those companies. He gave uh, uh, Julian Assange the best definition of Google, which is a privatized NSA, <laughs> a privatized form of social control and so on. So you see what's my point here. I'm radically opposed to those idiots who claim we are now in a state of emergency, forget about politics. No, we are now in the radically political moment. Capitalism is changing. One tendency, one reaction is what some theorists defined as neo-feudalism, neo-feudal capitalism. These new corporate masters, Bill Gates, uh, Jeff Bezos, Amazon, and so on, they are not even no longer uh, traditional capitalists who work with profit. They are like feudal masters who get rent. They own part of our commons, our common space of 
of uh, communication, whatever, Facebook and so on, and uh, they get ranked. So this is one possibility. Who knows what will happen? I mean, it's a very open situation. Things are happening. The reason I emphasize this, I don't believe it will be now communism or whatever, is that in contrast to some of my leftist friends, I think that what's happening today is much more important than what was happening in 68. 68 revolt was for me a model of how a revolt, which was in some sense authentic, got uh, reinscribed through focus on sexual liberation, drug freedoms, and so on. We are, are not aware to what extent 68 originally was also a social struggle. Also, did you read this today, the 8th of March? You know, uh, today it's a... International. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But do you know, my friend Vladan Dolar, for a text dedicated to this, looked into it and said, do you know that the first time, it was in 1900, uh, 1911, 110 years ago, was the first time when... Uh, uh, The 8th of March was celebrated worldwide. But it was not yet this kind of official moment of respect to women. Dolar found some photos from big demonstrations in Vienna. 8th of March. You know what was the biggest poster there? Remember Paris Commune. Ah. Because Paris Commune was the 18th of March. And remember, we are celebrating uh, uh, now 100 and... Now, in a, next week, no? 180 years of Paris Commune. The first time those really below, beneath, uh, took power for two months, two whole months. So what I'm saying is that... Uh, You see, that's the problem today. Like American feminism, you know, how Nancy Fraser wrote a book. I was told I didn't have time to read it. It's pretty interesting. Again, about liberal reappropriation of American feminism mm. and so on and so on. So uh, uh, I'm not just a pessimist in the sense of the system can appropriate everything. No, the field is open. It's the time to... Well, you saw you saw that this week with the or last week with the vote that Kristen Cinema did on the the thumbs down on the fifteen dollar minimum wage, and her initial response to anyone criticizing it was it's feminist or it's it's anti-feminist to to criticize her her gesture of the of the thumbs down, which is like an I, it's got to be a key example of what Nancy Fraser is talking about. In yeah, that, yeah, in that yeah, book. yeah. Um. Well, you know, we, we, with us, we also, I mentioned somewhere, have a, uh, when democracy came, we have this left center, I was a member of it at that point, to oppose nationalists, liberal democratic party, so the government immediately established a small uh, government uh, department for women, and you know what was their first task? They selected it, to organize golf tournament, tournament for women. You know, that's... This was all a metaphor for all that was wrong. They had a certain power structure. Their obsession was just women should also be on the top. 
they were not bothered by the power structure as such, but just to squeeze enough women on the top. Yeah. Well, Slava, this uh, this has been interesting. <laughs> Screw you. Uh, now, I will say something for my traditional thing against uh, Russell. You see, <laughs> all the books behind him, he's bluffing. He wants to appear intellectual. I'm sure these are only covers of the book. <laughs> Wallpaper. It's all well, fake. It's, yeah, it's just a background. It's just a fake background. It's just a background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so really, I appreciated it. Thanks very much. And yeah, thanks, uh, I'm grateful to you. You know that the good thing about COVID is that precisely because of impossibility of direct communication, one, I meet people that probably otherwise I wouldn't have met. You know, Zoom has also its good points, you know. But you know what I'm really worried? I'm an old-fashioned guy here. I like cities with bustling life, like, you know, cafeteria, movie theater, bookstore. And I'm here a pessimist. Friends told me, friends from Washington Square, they're around lower side they wonder if this will ever return, or London, the whole center, Soho, Covent Garden. The idea is that it will not return. And if you combine this with the fact that, like, there are no longer DVDs, everybody is downloading and so on, you know, the most beautiful, without irony, I, I, nothing I liked more than a nice shopping experience in a good bookstore. My definition of a good bookstore is well. The bookseller there, at least in my department, philosophy, cultural studies, knows good new books and you have one or two tables where new books are displayed and it's wonderful to discover things that you never get on Amazon because with all their big uh, algorithms and so on. You know, when you buy a book on Amazon and then you get some uh, proposals, thing, books that may interest you, they're always, always, always wrong with me, you know. <laughs> and this makes me very depressed that what, what, what will happen in, at this level with our public life? Will this mean even more? control spaces, and so on, you know. Yeah. So, have a nice time as far as you can. Thanks to you and my gratitude. Have a good night. Uh, Yeah, because here it is, yes. And you, now I will be evil in my style. Go out, go to a movie theater and to a restaurant, and so on. (laughs) Have a nice time. Bye-bye. Bye.